We're going to continue our study through the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 14. Please open up. Don't stand yet because I want to give you a little intro. If you need a Bible, these folks walking down the aisle will give you one. Raise your hand. They'll hand it to you. If you don't own a Bible, keep it. It's our gift to you, but read it. A man whose Bible is falling apart is a sign that their life usually isn't. So hang on to that. All right. Let me, um, let me prepare you for the message today. And I, I find it interesting and so profound how the Lord manages to knit everything uh, together. And uh, he's tremendously blessed me uh, this week, although it's been one of the hardest weeks I think I can recall. Um, yesterday, I got back at around six o'clock from a fishing trip out to the Channel Islands, which was delightful. Um, and you get out to the Channel Islands and you lose cell service. It's just so wonderful. It's just something about that. Just the phone goes, and you're like, oh, there is life beyond cell coverage. Um, and I was invited by a friend to go out there, and I had a chance to take my son-in-law, so the four of us went out fishing and um, caught some barracuda, one halibut, uh, brought none of it home. Um, catch and release. Actually, we couldn't get it in the net, <laughs> so don't clap for me. And it was 35... It, it, pound uh, halibut, 40, 35 foot. I can't remember. It, it'll be bigger tomorrow. <laughs> it was legal, though. I, I could tell that much. It was a biggie. It looked like a rug. Would have been delicious. I don't like fish, so thank God I got away. Uh, I did catch some minnows in the tank. <laughs> Stupid. So this week was interesting. Uh, my, my family and I had the chance, and we had scheduled it eight months ago, uh, to go to San Diego for the 4th of July. And we left here last Sunday uh, in the afternoon, drove to Coronado. We had to get the hotel eight months in advance. Uh, it was right across the street from my sister's house. We got four rooms. Um, my whole family was there, um, all my son-in-laws, my grandkids, all my children, my wife. We were all there. It was awesome. And... Uh, um, all my siblings were there. It was a wonderful gathering. My sister Gretchen, who had received the Lord um, uh, here, uh, my lesbian sister, she, um, she'd had a very serious issue. She'd had a torn artery and almost died. And, um, and they caught it. It was congenital. My maternal grandmother died of it at 48. And they caught it. Um, and she's, she's doing really well. And so we were happy to see her live. I remember Molly going up. My daughter Molly, just the minute she looked at Aunt Gretchen, she started crying because she just, life without Gretchen, the luckiest people in the world, people have Gretchen as a friend. She's just precious. And, um, and it was really sweet to be with her. And uh, her life partner, Mo, my kids call her Aunt Mo, um, she was there and we were all interacting. Um, and so it was a great time. And uh, Gretchen couldn't make the trip, so... Uh, we went over to her house uh, to visit her. She, she'd come to the house periodically, but she was weak. So we went to visit her and Mo was there and, and uh, they, they threw this out um, that, that they were getting married on Thursday. And I, you know, many in the family thought they were already married. Uh, Mo had taken Gretchen's last name and a legal document and the like, but they were saying they were doing it for social security purposes and some other things. So we didn't think much of it. And, and our family members said, well, when is it? We'll come. And they said, no, no, we don't want anyone there. Okay. You know, they didn't want anybody there, and okay. And um, and I got a call from Brett um, 
Nick Ochoa, who very dear friend of mine, he worked tirelessly in the campaign like many, uh, but I don't think anyone's beaten uh, Nick as far as I think he's walked 30,000 homes. One that was his dear friend that walked with him was a man by the name of Harry Grotty. And Harry was a retired fireman. He walked well over 20,000 homes for me in the four elections. And he was here two weeks ago and gave me a hug and said, and he said this every time I saw him, he said, I, I love you and I'm praying for you and your whole family by name. And you, you could see in his eyes, he meant every word he was saying. And he was a prayer warrior and uh, he passed, uh, went to be with the Lord. And, and he was in church riddled with brain cancer, had surgeries and everything. And Nick had told me, you need to go see Harry. And I go, yeah, I will. But I couldn't tell how bad it was. And I knew we were having the vacation because Harry had been here. And while I'm in San Diego, I get the call from Brett that Harry's been put into hospice. You got to get back. And so we cut our vacation a day early and came back. I got in about 1130. I thought about calling Delia, but I thought it's too late and I don't want to disturb her. I'll just go in the morning. I got my car to drive over there and Delia said, Harry died last night at 1 a.m. I thought, you know, I missed him. I missed saying goodbye. You know, here's a man that he did so much for me. Harry lived to make my life easy. And I, I couldn't be there when he, when he passed just to say goodbye. And the conviction rolled over me. It was heavy. And I thought about it as I was driving, and, and the Lord kind of put it on my heart that the, the last person who would want me to cut my vacation a day early was Harry. He would have been upset to know that I had left a day early because, like I said, he lived to make my life easy. And uh, Delia said, Rob, we know how busy you are. And I said, you know whose fault that is? And she said, who? And I said, it's Harry's fault. He's the one who got me elected. <laughs> but I missed him. And um, it made me sad. And as I got back, all hell broke loose. It was crazy. I, as I was driving over to, to see Delia, all hell broke loose. I turned around and kind of came back. And it was counseling sessions, um, four in particular, that if if a pastor in the course of his entire ministry faces one of those, it's, it's pretty exceptional, let alone four really intense issues. And for the sake of anonymity, I can't go into detail, but suffice it to say, they were all awful, all awful. Uh, one in particular was devastating. And, um, and it's all happening at once. And um, it's, it's overwhelming. Plus we're still in the middle of a move and, and I'm getting tired and I'm just thinking, gosh, why did I even go on vacation, you know? And then in the midst of it, this letter comes through from my sister that really made me mad. She said, hello, family. I wanted to take a moment to let you know that Mo and I are officially getting married today after 19 years of being together. It's one of the most important days of my life and I'm so happy to be able to legally acknowledge my love and devotion to Mo now and forever. I found myself tearing up this morning thinking how happy and joyful I am to share my life with Mo, but realizing that most of my family members are not supportive of same-sex marriage for religious reasons. A simple congratulations or we are so happy for you never was conveyed by any of my siblings, just silence. How that hurts me deep down inside. I would never want any of you to feel the way I feel right now. And she sent it to every grandkid, every sibling, every, you know, in-law. She goes on to say, it dawned on me how hurt I was to get that to not get that support from my family when Mo and I were at breakfast this morning. And during the course of the breakfast, Mo mentioned to our waitress, Kathy, that we were getting married today. Kathy's response was so touching. She was so excited for us. And I started crying because I was so moved by her reaction to our special day. She also arranged for a fruit plate pictured below to be sent to our table and arranged with her manager for our breakfast to be complimentary. 
It was this kind gesture and non-judgment of a non-family member that made my day today. I'll never forget this random act of kindness from a stranger. I have so much love and respect for our family members and hope I show each and every one of you that what unconditional love looks like. I'm crying as I write this and I want to share this with you. So maybe next time if a family member is in love with someone, no matter what the race, color, sexual orientation, or eye color, we can be more supportive of them as a family and better show that generosity of spirit that is our family brand. Love is love. A couple of the grandkids responded. One in particular says, love wins, and you know a lot of things like that. And a couple other grandkids responded, and I just stayed out of it, and I was a little upset. I just felt like I was blindsided. And um, I didn't want to respond because it, it wasn't a public issue to me. And I didn't want to drag the family through it. I thought it was, you know, positioning, and I, I thought it was staged. We weren't invited. We had offered to come. We were told no. We were told that it was had to do with Social Security, and all of a sudden we're hit with this. And I, I told her, I just said it wasn't fair. It was unkind. And it was cheap. And in the course of that, my nephew, um, who is about a little older than my boys, but really connects with my boys. He's the youngest of my, my brother's kids. He was back from the University of Kentucky. He's a lifeguard in Encinitas, and he wanted to come and spend time with the boys, so he was here. And Roy's at the University of Kentucky, and um, and I, I, I sat with him, and I, I started asking him questions about the letter. How did it affect you, on and on and on. And he was like a typical millennial. He just, you know, I, I don't really get into all that. I just want to love Aunt Gretch and Aunt Mo, and, you know, love is love. And, and he's just laying it out. And I said, yeah, I, I get that. And I started to lay out, I said, do you know anything about autonomy, theonomy, heteronomy? Do you know anything about those? No, I don't. And I said, do you understand? I mean, you're, my, my brother's wife is Guatemalan. And I said, you spent a lot of time in Guatemala. He goes, yeah, I have. I said, do you see a contrast between America and the United States? Because I do. I would hate to live in Guatemala. He said, I love this country. Don't get me wrong. I just don't get into politics. And I said, and he goes, I'm a Christian, but I just don't see the need to get involved like that. And I go, okay. I said, the Bible says that a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So you enjoy America in contrast to Guatemala, yet you don't want to do anything to make it that way for your children or your children's children. It's kind of like, I'm digging what I'm getting, and I just want to leave it at that. He goes, well, government's corrupt. And I said, yeah, yeah, it is. I said, is that a result of your efforts? No. I said, no, it is, because you haven't participated. That's why. And you don't do anything to engage, and now you're decrying the decline. Well, I, yeah, I see that. I go, well, no, you're, you're, you like to receive. You, you like to receive, but you don't give. And I said, and you think this is an issue with me and Gretchen? It's not. It's a microcosm picture of a greater struggle that our nation is facing. We're looking at the First Amendment. We're looking at, at what we consider human rights, gay rights, and, and we have a conflict here. So one will be silenced or, or diminished. And I, and I said, is this conversation happening in the 1040 window, longitude, latitude of the earth, where 95% of the Muslim world exists? Are they having this conversation? No, they're hanging them, beheading them, throwing them off buildings. I said, why is it here in America? Well, because we have freedom. Where does that freedom come from? What is the foundation for that freedom? What are the terms that we're dealing with? How did we come about this constitutional republic that we have this ability to dialogue and, de- and debate? Yeah. And as I started going through this idea of autonomy, self-rule with theonomy, God's law, and heteronomy, another of the same kind, I said, if what you're filled with is what you're ruled by, if you're not filled with the Lord, you don't, theonomy is irrelevant, and thus all of your application doesn't happen. If you're not filled with the Lord, heteronomy, another of the same kind, so we're gravitating towards socialism, gravitating towards communism, centralized government where, where we lose these freedoms. I said, you know, 
Roy, I, I remember so many freedoms that you don't possess today as we're watching these erode before our very eyes. And God wants personal accountability before, be, between him and, and, and the church doesn't teach his law anymore or apply it. I said, can you name for me any of the Ten Commandments? No, that'd be hard by I me. Mean, don't steal. Yeah, that's one of them. Don't covet. Very good. Do you know what number it is? I don't. And I would, I would ask you, do you know any of the Ten Commandments? I mean, this is heteronomy. This is being governed by God. This is, this is civil government. This is either heteronomy, excuse me, heteronomy or theonomy. And if Christians don't understand God's rules and, and the way we're supposed to play with each other, we're in trouble. And listen, I, I, some of the rules I don't like. Quite frankly, I don't like them. Some of them I have no problem with. Like, easy to keep the, the commandments, like don't eat bat meat. <laughs> I'm all in. But civil laws of government where we come to, and, and, and as I shared this with him, he said, you know, I've never, ever thought of it like that. He goes, gosh, my eyes have been opened. I said, it's, we're not pitted against each other. We're family, and we, we dialogue and have these communications together. We don't blanket each other and, and isolate and divide. We endeavor. I said, you now understand me. I understand you. Yeah. And, and I understand more than I ever have. It's really opened up my eyes. It took 10 minutes. For, for a millennial to go, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's like a miracle. <laughs> and he said, you know, I'm, I'm really, I don't want you to be hurt. And I go, what's that? And he goes, well, prior to our conversation, I had sent a letter back to Aunt Gretch. And now, and then she said, can I send it to the whole family? And I, I said, well, it was kind of personal, but I guess so. And he goes, now I'm kind of sorry. And then this letter came out. She said, hello again, just wanted to share with you the text we received from Roy Diego, Aunt Gretch and Aunt Mo. I just got off the phone with Rachel and she informed me that the two of you are now officially married and I wanted to say congratulations and wish you both a very, very, very happy and blessed wedding day. I apologize for not sending this sooner, but I was unaware of what was going on. I know that some of the members of our family may have had a hard time with your decision, but I want you both to know how much I utterly love, adore, support you and know indescribably grateful I am to the two of you, most beautiful, strong, amazing women as my aunts. You both have shown me nothing but love. Uh, and he goes on. And it's, and, and, and listen, I, it's what he knows. And I thought it was, you know, thoughtful. But he had a different perspective after our conversation. And, and he understood that I love Gretchen. And she loves me. And we're contending for whether it's going to be theonomy or heteronomy. Listen, everybody in the room struggles with something. And of the four major counseling issues this week, three of them had to do with infidelity. And they, 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 they weren't homosexual couples, church couples. Everybody's got issues. We all need to submit to theonomy. We're watching families decimated. We have to apply this to our lives. We're contending for the hearts and the minds and the souls of humanity. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. We're all struggling, no doubt. But the Lord says, come let us reason together. Though your sins were as scarlet, you'll be as white as snow. But it means submission. And you don't take the parts you like and the parts you don't like. You put it all together. And over here, as we look at these philosophies, what is the standard? What is the absolutes? There aren't any. And so you have to isolate and silence a group of people to, to push your position forward. 
And then my daughter responded. She hasn't sent it yet. She's praying over it. She must have listened to one of my sermons. I'll give you excerpts of it. On Gretchen Mo, I don't need examples of other family members' responses forwarded to me to show me how much better of a job they do of loving you. It is pitting us up against one another. James and I had no idea that you and Aunt Mo, as she has been my aunt long before this day for, uh, for my life as far back as I can remember, were legally tying the knot today. If I had known, if I had had any clue, I would have been there in a heartbeat, both James and I. Regardless of beliefs, race, sexual orientation, or eye color, etc., our entire family believes in one thing, that you show up for each other and love no matter what. Unconditional love does that. Unconditional love has no conditions. You think unconditional love is not given nor extended by anyone here? The day you had your heart attack, and I was thinking about this, my daughter Molly, she's weeping as she's hugging uh, Gretchen. Um, and then I was also thinking about Harry Grotti, and, and I was thinking about Brett, who's a servant, and I'll, I'll share more with you later. But, you know, I don't know Brett Schallerberger's birthday. I don't know Harry's birthday. I don't know Dom McClure's birthday. A lot of you, I don't know your birthdays. What kind of a friend am I? I wasn't even there for Harry's death. What kind of a friend am I? I already had gone through the motions of what an awful human being I am this whole week, especially when I was out at the islands, how I fail people. And yet it cut to the core of how ridiculous I am and how useless, in a sense, my daughter pointed this out, our relationship was, that it would be based on one event. If my forgetting their birthdays meant more to them than the countless days I've spent with them, what kind of a relationship is that? My daughter wrote, a text or an email should not define love for you. And if that is what the love of this family is contingent on, then you have very little faith in the bond each of us share with you. You think unconditional love is not given or extended by our family? On my wedding day, I would have done anything to have you and Aunt Mo there together. I could care less about things like employee of the month, which is what my sister does, money, wedding gifts, trips, dinners. I cried for weeks on my wedding day knowing my why aunt, that my Aunt Mo wouldn't uh, didn't make my wedding. And the reason why Mo didn't come is because she said that it was going to be a room filled with bigots and haters. I thought about calling and begging her to come in spite of everything she felt, but I didn't want to inconvenience anybody. I thought her love for me meant more than what was going on in our country at the time because it was right after the election it was November. It meant more to us than what was going on in our country at the time. Government and its decisions mattered more than family. Is unconditional love contingent upon who I voted for? Would my vote have changed her conditions for loving me to where she would have come to my wedding? You and I didn't vote for the same person, yet you were there, Aunt Gretch. You don't hold to some things that I do, nor do I hold to some of the things that you do, but you wanted to be there for me and everything, no matter what we hold to, because family does not have condition for loving each other. Love is love, I agree, Kelly wrote. Everyone here does. What the heck does that have to do with everyone sending you a congratulations? Love is love. Great. Shout it from the rooftop. Send it out in an email announcement. Include us on your special day or share your joy so we can share it too and be there for you. You didn't even give us a chance and you want to blame us for robbing you of your special day? You alone are robbing yourself and making everyone feel like they don't know how to love you to the best of their ability. Do you want to push everyone away? Do you want everyone to comply like robots to everything you, you have ever believed? What kind of family would that be? We would all be the same and have no uniqueness to character and what makes you love us. 
And Gretch, you of all people have taught me strength and love and being there for family. You were at my wedding for me when I wanted you there, yet you were not, yet we were not invited and told, in fact, we were not to be at your wedding. I wasn't even given the chance to be there for you. Nothing. And now I am told I don't love you? How could I have let you down when I didn't even know? We do not try to tear this family apart by our beliefs. We endeavor to build it by our love and by being there for each other. You and Aunt Nancy and Uncle Lauren and my dad have taught us all that that is how we operate in this family. Anyone that does not see it that way needs to come to grips with the reality that the McCoy family does not operate like any other family we endeavor with one another. Judge as you see fit which family member does a better job at responding best to your email, but I will not play games or charades. I'm your niece, not your enemy, and I'm not an employee whose job it is to be compared to the others based on my response. Then she goes on, and I was really touched, and I thought how thoughtful her email was. And here we are in the throes of it, and this, this email comes through, and I'm burdened by it, and I'm sad. And, and then all this other stuff is happening. And in the midst of it all, in the midst of it all, God gives me a word for a, a pastor, Don McClure, my pastor. I haven't talked to Don in months. I'm like, Lord, look at my, it's like 80 texts. Lord, I don't have time for this. Call him. All right. So I pick up the phone. I call him. Hey, Rob, what are you doing? Hey, Pastor Don, I'm calling because the Lord has a word for you. I've never given him a word. You know, you don't have any idea what that is. I don't even, I, how many of you have ever received a word from me? Exactly. I'm like, I have a, I have a, I have a word, word for you. He goes, I need it. I go, well, it's about CCA. I know you're neck deep. He goes, I'm in over my head. CCA is Calvary Chapel Association, CGN, Calvary Global Network. They've split from each other. One is being run by Brian Broderson, Costa Mesa, took over for Chuck. He was his son-in-law. CCA is all the remaining churches. We've lost about 10 churches that have joined CGN. And it's a little bit of a battle since Chuck died. He goes, what's the word? I said, well, it began with my sister's letter, um, Harry Grady's death, and some other things that I'm dealing with. I'm watching Pastor Brett fill in in my absence. I said, basically, it boils down to this, Pastor Don. I said, um, Harry Grady walked 25,000 homes maybe for me in four elections, and he died of a brain tumor, and I wasn't there when he passed. I don't know, his anniversary or his birthday. I feel very convicted by that. And I said, my sister Gretchen is taking an enormous amount of time in the midst of already a busy schedule, And I contend with her more than I contend with anyone else in the congregation. I put up with her more than I put up with anybody else in the congregation because she's my sister. And and I'm I'm hurt. And I'm wondering if if I'm having any effect. And while I'm engaged in all of this, Brett and everybody else is running the church and taking care of all the things I can't. And I said, this is the word the Lord has for you. I said, Don, I served as your assistant pastor in San Jose. And he goes, yeah, you did. And I said, Don... You were the hardest man I ever worked for, but I loved you as a son loves a father. And he said, Rob, I love you as a father loves a son. I said, Don, I know you mean every word you say, but I have a quick question for you. Actually, two. What? I said, Don, when's my birthday? I don't know. When's my anniversary? I don't know. And you don't know any of my kids' birthdays. And I'm not judging you. I'm not even upset by it. I'm just contrasting with the fact you know Marcus's birthday, you know Don Jr.'s birthday, and you know Mike's birthday, and you know your daughter-in-law's birthdays, and you know all your grandkids' birthdays because they're family. Don, I'm a servant to you, and you serve Chuck. And I got news for you. Chuck probably didn't know your birthday. 
He goes, no, he didn't. And I can tell you horror stories about Chuck treated Don. I mean, Don left his ministry in San Jose to help Chuck transition. And when he got there, Chuck changed his mind and left Don hanging in the wind, as well as John Corson. And one time Chuck promised Don a raise and he went and bought a house based on the raise and Chuck never gave him the raise and he couldn't even live in the house he bought. I can tell you story after story and Don loves Chuck as do you know all of the early Calvary Chapel guys. And I said, I said, Don, here's the word. CCA, Calvary Chapel Association and CGN. CCA is composed of the servants. CGN is composed of the family. Let me explain. You and I know what it's like to be servants. And I used to despise the fact that I would serve you as a son serves a father and I'd watch your boys walk in and they'd get an audience with you right away. And I was embittered to that until I realized my job was to make it so you could spend time with them. And it didn't matter if you remembered my birthday. I wanted you to have family time. You see, servants, we sign up for it, and God gives us a supernatural love in the midst of that service to bless the people we've been called to serve. Family doesn't sign up for it. They're thrown into it, and they're wounded. CCA is a servant. CGN is the family. Be gentle with them. They're all hurting. And that's the word the Lord gave me. Don said, I bear witness to that. And I share that with you because I came back to the same insanity. And I get a phone call on Friday from a member of the congregation that says, hey, my wife and I are going out on the boat. We're going fishing. You want to come? Bring your boys? I said, yeah. My boys couldn't go. I said, can I bring my son along? I said, yeah. So we meet down at the docks at like 4 o'clock. I get my fishing license. We go out there. And I couldn't wait to get away. I was so tired. I get out there, and the phone goes dead. I'm like, yes. I don't care if I caught nothing. I had the best nap you can imagine. And, and, and I remember coming back, and I know right where re- cell reception happens at the Channel Islands, I'm like, uh. And I hit there and goes, bling, 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 Suction cups. You know, and they're, I need, I need, I need, Dr. Marvin, I need. And, and, and I, I, I loved it. My heart was full. My body was tired. My heart was full. And I I went out to the islands to get away. And that is a long introduction for the passage because you're going to see it right here. (laughs) So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up at verse 13 as we're going through the book of Matthew. And by the way, remember last week we covered the death of John the Baptist? He was beheaded. John the Baptist was related to Jesus. Elizabeth, John's mother, was Mary's great aunt. When she was pregnant with John the Baptist and Mary was pregnant with Jesus, the babies leapt in the womb. They had been connected even in the womb. They were close. John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah paved the way for the Lord, make straight the way of the Lord. He baptized Jesus. They were connected. His heart was broken. He even said of him in the passage, of men born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. He loved John. John's dead. So when the passage begins today with, when Jesus heard it, that means his heart was torn apart. He was grieved. And any one of those counseling sessions would have brought you grief, let alone four. I can't imagine losing someone by beheading. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to the Channel Islands. (laughs) 
No, to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. And he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fishes. It's a long John Silver happy meal. And he said to them, bring them here to me. And then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave it to the multitudes. And so they all ate and were filled. And the word filled means they were glutton. They couldn't, they, they couldn't even swallow what was in their mouth. They'd eaten so much. And they took up the 12 baskets full of fragments that had remained. And now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So it's estimated anywhere from 12 to 15,000 people were fed that day. And it's, it's one of only a handful of stories that are included in all four gospel accounts. This is a fascinating story that every gospel writer included. And we're going to glean from each of them today. But let's pray and ask God's blessing. Holy Spirit, you lead us into all truth. And your word is alive. And so we ask now that you cause us to come alive to your word. And that you would touch us and transform us, equip us, convict us, and change us for your glory. Speak to us, Lord, please. Our hearts are ready to receive, and we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, relax. It begins with, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. He wanted to get out of there. If you've been to the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to be there in November 6th to the 16th, on the Sea of Galilee, it's about 15 miles long, nine miles wide, and anywhere on the shores of Galilee, you can see the other area of Galilee. You can see the entirety of the lake from any vantage point on a clear day. You can see every shore. So when Jesus gets into this boat after having been suction cupped by the thousands of people that are following him, and he wants to get away for some rest, because the other passage says he wanted to get away to rest. And he needs to go to a deserted place. And so he gets in this boat by himself to get away. And when he gets into the boat, fascinatingly enough, everybody on the shore can see the boat as it's rowing across the lake. And they're like, there it is. Keep an eye on it. And they're gathering people from all the cities. And they're running along the shore waiting for him to come into cell reception so they can... And, and, and they're waiting and they all have needs and everybody wants to have somebody healed. Everybody needs some sort of financial help. Everybody, there's always... And we need, we need... And he's tired, and his, be- his, his loved one is dead. And he, 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 he's tempted in all ways. He suffers like we suffer. It's all there, and he is grieving, and his heart's broken. And they're all waiting to get something. They don't give a flip about John. They want something. They got their problems, and you're the solution to my problem. And they're all running along the shore, and you can just see him gathering. Just as, And they're growing in need. <laughs> He's getting closer to the shore, and he's like, let's get ready for this. And he gets to the shore, and boom, they're on him like white on rice. And, and at that moment, the scripture says that he begins to teach them, and they had all kinds of needs. And the passage that we read said he was moved with compassion for them. The scripture said he healed their sick. You know, there's a lot that goes into healing. You have to be in tune with the Lord. You have to be connected to him. You have to be empty of yourself, filled with him. You've got to be mindful. You've got to listen. You've got to be compassionate. All these things are playing and it's draining you and he's exhausted and he's pouring into them and he's healing their sick. Thousands of people. 
It's going into the evening and the disciples are, get back, get back. Oh, I have this and I have that and I have this. And one after another and just a sea of faces, one after the other as he's just laying hands on him, praying for him. And he, all this has taken place. And now they're tired and he's, he's, he's exhausted. He's connected with everyone who had an illness. He's wiped out and the sun's starting to set over the Sea of Galilee and you're watching it. And the disciples look and it says they're in a deserted place. It doesn't mean they're in a desert. It's actually, John pointed out that it's during the Passover. So it's in the spring. And so there's grass everywhere. It's green, it's lush, it's lovely. And the hillside, if you go there, it's, it's the same as it was back then. You go back in time. It's fascinating. The most peaceful place I've ever been in all the earth. And there they are, they're, they're, and, and they're, they're, they're all there. But there's no villages to get any food because where he rode to, it's just out in the middle of nowhere, East Jabib. And as he's out there, all the disciples come and say, you gotta send these people away because they've been coming to you for healing. Now they're gonna come to you for food and we don't have any food. You gotta send them away, send them back to their house. There's maybe a little bit of time to be able to get to their house. It's gonna be late and they're gonna be walking through dangerous areas. Send them back. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. One account says that uh, one of the disciples comes up and says, what, what would be 200 denarii between so many people? He'd gone over to Judas and he says, Judas, how much money do we have? Judas goes, we have 200 denarii. And he goes, oh, 200 denarii. I thought we had 300, but I, maybe I'm wrong. And he, <laughs> if you don't know the joke, you haven't been reading your Bible. And, and, he, and he, he says, we have 200 denarii. We can't feed anybody with 200 denarii. That's it. That's all that's in the money bag. That, Judas said that. And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, it says in, in John 6, he comes up and he goes, hey, I got this little kid. And he's got, he's got five loaves and two fishes. Uh, let's pull up the screen if we could. Now, that's kind of what the loaves look like, but they were barley loaves, which was the crop of the impoverished. It was the poor people food. And, and they, they, that, likes, that looks like pita bread. They'd be smaller like a disc, like a hockey disc. And, and they would... They would um, they look like an English muffin. So it's like an Israeli muffin made out of barley. <laughs> and then it's, it's the equivalent of a smelt or a mackerel, just a small dried sardine. And there's 12 to 15,000 people. And there's five of those discs and two of those fish. And, and Matthew doesn't include where they came from. Let's go to the next picture. But I think it's John who includes that it's a little boy, a lad, which means he's about 12 to 15, young kid, maybe 9 to 15, depending on the, the commentator of the text. He's a young kid. And what's fascinating about that is he's got five loaves and two fishes, which means his mama, when he came to mama, I want to go follow Jesus today. All the crowds are gathering and he's healing everybody. And I want to go and intercede for my little sister. And I want to pray for dad that he come home. And I want to, whatever it is, his mama says, you're not getting out of here without food. And she takes time to pack this in and tie it up and give it to him. And little boy's following Jesus. He comes up and he, he sees all these folks and he hears as he's just, the little kid's able to weasel his way into the crowd. And he's up, he hears him talking about food and he goes, hey, I got some. I got some. And he undoes his little thing. He says, I got five loaves and two fishes and I will share. You can have it all. Actually, I'm kind of full because mom fed me breakfast before I left and I do really well. I don't need a lot of food. And Andrew goes, wait, let's go. Let's give this to him. Come on. He's probably trying to encourage. Hey, he walks up and he goes, oh, we got five loaves and two fishes. And then Andrew realizes how stupid he sounds. He goes, and what's that again among so many? <laughs> it's just, I was, I was looking out for the kid. You know what I'm saying? It's not even, no big deal. I'm, I'm sure you got this all worked out, Messiah. <laughs> and the little boy's going, but I got this. 
And, and the adult mindset is, we only got 200 denarii. What is this among so many? We got a problem on our hands. You need to send them away. You told us to feed them, not send them away, that, that we're to feed them. We don't have the resources to feed them. And Jesus says, bring that to me. Now their thinking is, we don't have the food. And I've shared this illustration with you a thousand times. I thought the visual was better. Let's go to the next picture. You've heard the story that I tell you countless times about the little boy who's with his grandpa on the beach and the hurricane had hit and hundreds of thousands of starfish, maybe millions, as far as the eye can see, had been washed up during the hurricane. The hurricane recedes, the sun comes out and all these starfish are dying on the shore because they can't get back to the ocean. The little boy starts to pick them up and the grandpa says, you're wasting your time. You can't make a difference for any, it, 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 there's too many of them. And the little grandson says, but I'm making a difference for this one and I'm making a difference for this one at which point the grandpa starts to join him and the output of the work is exponential and they begin just looking at what's in front of them and take their eyes off the horizon and start making a difference. And this was the picture of my, my nephew, Roy Diego. But the problem is millennials are apathetic. You don't even want to try to make a difference. You just came to be fed And your generation is so used to receiving from the parents who've been providing that you don't want to throw anything back or try to work towards it. And the older folks in here who are giggling at that, you're you're the grandpa. You've given up hope. And, and, And the reason why we have millennials is because you haven't instilled with them any vision. And a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and and we've just given it up. Let's just try to survive for right now. Forget about anything making any effect. It's too overwhelming. And now we have the problem we're in. Theonomy or heteronomy. And this little boy comes up and says, I got this. And Jesus' response is, bring it to me. And and I love what um, John says. Is it John? No, it's Luke. Luke says, Then Jesus commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And and then we get that out of, again, Exodus 18, 21, that that we're to appoint godly men who hate covetousness, love the truth, appoint them over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. That's where our, our founding fathers got local, county, state, federal government. Organize. We have to start establishing order government structure. He says, put them in groups of fifties and hundreds, make pathways between them. The other text says, and you can imagine that the 12 disciples going out there and trying to herd cats. Okay. We need this group over in fifties. Yeah, but I want to be with my brother and I I don't want to be with them and I don't like them. They're our neighbors. I want to go sit in that thing. And everybody's got it. Do you have a connection with Jesus? Can you, I know you want us to sit down, but I really, I've been, I've been waiting a long time. And they're having to contend and they've got counseling sessions and they're trying to move the people into groups and the 12 are trying to gather them and 15,000 people getting in groups of 50s and 100s and they're exhausted. I sounded like I was saying something. And they're tired. And, and, and everyone's sitting down going, oh good, well where are the banquet tables? Where's the food? And they all come back after herding all the cats and they're all in their groups. And they come back and Jesus says, now give them something to eat. And that's where they do the 200 denarii and they say, we got this. And they go, we don't have anything. And Jesus said, bring it here to me. And the little boy whose mama, holding the family together, providing for her child, now has the ability. And this woman changed the world. 
Her, her name's not listed. The little boy's there, but we don't know her. She's the one who put the meal together. This little boy gives what he has because his mama gave him what she had. He gives it to Jesus. Jesus gives thanks, and the other text says he gives thanks. I can imagine his, his thanking. He blesses, and he gives thanks, and his thanks were, Lord, thank you for your provision, and Lord, thank you for the little boy. Probably called him by name. Thank you for his gift, his willingness. Thank you for his mama. Thank you for the disciples. Give thanks in all things for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And he gives thanks. He says, thank you for all the folks. And thank you that you're going to meet their needs and the riches of Christ. <laughs> me. Jesus, not me. And he prays and he breaks it. And it's nighttime. And they're holding the baskets. They're like, this is an exercise in futility. This is absolute stupidity. Jesus breaks it. He puts it in there. He breaks it. He puts it in there. He breaks it. And they're going to go in there. They're going, whoa. <laughs> DNA is happening. All the stuff is, you know, matter is increasing and the bread and the fish are burning. And they're walking around. They're giving them out. And as they're giving them out, they're just blown away. And everyone's eating and eating and eating. It says they ate as much as they wanted. They were glutton. They're like, Aah. And the word for sit is they're not sitting down. They're laying down like they're prepared to lounge. And they're loosening their belt. And they're just stuffing themselves with protein and carbohydrates. And the nap's coming on. And they're getting the carbohydrate sleepies. And they're just, Aah. Right? And, and there's so much left over, they go to pick it up because it's J- Jewish tradition that you don't leave any food behind and any, you know, if it's partially eaten, you know, but they, they put it all back in and they're bringing it back and 12 basketfuls and the disciples are carrying going, this rocks. And the reason why every single gospel account has listed this is because it was such a profound act of faith that transformed. There's two things, there's obedience and there's faith. And I don't know where the line is. Obedience is obeying the commands of God. I don't like some of the commandments but I'm not in charge. And you don't get to pick the ones you want and the ones you don't want. And you apply them and you adhere to them. And they witness this obedience to the Lord and obedience is just doing what he's commanded you to do. Faith is, I I don't see it, but I trust you. I think the faith increased as the obedience started to uh, cover the, the lack and in there, they, the, the faith just opened up. And they're carrying baskets, and they had unbelievable faith at that point. And as I was taking a look at all of this, when Jesus said, bring them here to me, and thinking about Simon, Peter, and the way that they'd orchestrated all this, and Jesus giving thanks, and everything that had occurred, and all these people were fed, and there was that little boy. And I, I, I look at this, and I call it the power of one. Let's stop with those pictures. Can you... Get ready the video. Don't show it yet, but get the video ready. This is one of my favorite videos. It's from TED Talks. And it's called How to Start a Movement. How to Start a Movement. Really quick, very simple, and very profound. And watch. I was thinking about Harry. In 2014, when I had the crazy idea of running for the state assembly, I mean, that was just a nutty thing to do. I remember telling Pastor Brett, and he hadn't, he's like, I don't get it, but I'm in. He didn't judge me, he didn't question me. Harry didn't either. I watched Nick Ochoa, and I watched Tom Hunt, and Ron Gerber, and countless of you. You just, you just jumped in and started dancing. We had no idea what we were doing. 
And Harry, for three of those elections, he did it with brain cancer. He was the leader. I just stepped out to do something stupid. But they saw in me or whatever we were doing something far more profound than the person that was starting. And I look where we are and yeah, I am, I'm bummed I missed his passing. But if my relationship with Harry is based on one day, there's not such a thing as unconditional love. Harry loved me. I know he did. And I know he's not upset that I missed that day. But you know, the amazing thing about Harry is that he was tired. He worked hard. Our air conditioner broke one time and he was over there and he's, he wasn't a spring chicken and he was just pouring into fixing it. He wouldn't accept a dime from me. I begged him. He worked so hard. He never tired of doing good. He, got, he wore that body out. I mean, he was in church two weeks ago. And all he could say to me is, I love you and I'm praying for you and your whole family. I pray for you every day. And you looked into his eyes and you knew he meant every word of it. Now he's gone. There's a big hole. I hope there's another Harry out there. Because I was thinking to myself, all the people were filled, they were glutted. And they had eaten to their heart's content. They're, they're fat and happy. And somebody brought them food and took care of them. And they couldn't wait for the, the carbo nap to wear off so they could get back to asking Jesus for something. And the ones who were most tired were the ones that organized in 50s and 100s. They were the ones that walked the pathways and brought the food and went back and got more and brought the food. And you know what? The disciples and that little boy and everyone who participated, their bodies were worn out, but their hearts were full. And when I got on that boat to go out to the Channel Islands, I was worn out, but my heart was full. And when I came back, I was blessed. I kept thinking to myself, I love this congregation. I love this calling. And when I said that Harry's gone and there's a hole, there is and there isn't. I walked into my office and there was a card waiting for me, unsolicited. Blessings beyond measure. Just the boat alone that they would call me to invite me. I guess the question is, are you the glutton waiting for somebody to feed you? Are you willing to get tired and have your body worn out but your heart full? Are you looking at the horizon and you've given up with apathy? Are you, are you transmitting that to the next generation? You young kids, are you, have you given up because you just, you just rather sit on the lawn and have someone bring you something? It's the power of one. It's that little boy making the difference. Bring it to Jesus, whatever you have, bring it to him. And I got news for you. You will be walking pathways. You will be filling baskets. You'll be organizing people. You'll be doing work and you will be tired, but you'll be full. This is a life worth living.
Harry proved it. Apathy is not faith and it's not obedience. It doesn't work. There's generations to come that we are called to give to them that which we've received. I'm going to close with a couple of heroes. Can you pull up the screen for me? That's George Mueller. George Mueller clothed, sheltered, and educated 10,000 orphans without ever asking for a shilling. He prayed. Milk trucks would break down in front of the orphanage and say, this is going to go to waste. And they'd all been praying. They'd actually set the table waiting for food to arrive, thanking the Lord for the food that would come. A bread truck would break up, break down right after the milk truck. He has voluminous volumes of, of God's faithfulness by his prayer and, and asking the Lord. This is a man that, that, that organized the people and made the pathways. And he realized, like the disciples did, that we are distributors. God's the manufacturer. He manufactures it. We distribute it. How will they know unless someone tells them? And apathy doesn't win the day. You want to sit there, somebody will feed you. But there are pathways and and people to organize and lives to be touched. And you see George Mueller. He's pretty fascinating. Show the next picture of him. He wrote, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. You know where he learned that from? Has anyone ever heard of R.C. Chapman? Charles Spurgeon said he was the saintliest man who ever lived. There's a picture of him. He's a man who gave up a a, a very lucrative law practice from a very wealthy family in England to go into the inner city of, of, of of an English town to unify those churches and press it forward. And he inspired Mueller and Spurgeon. And there's very little written about him. We can barely find anything, but these men reflected on his life so profoundly. He's the little boy with the loaves and the fish. Go to the next one. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. Martin Luther King Jr. I imagine the room's divided. Some of you go, oh, Martin Luther King Jr. Do you realize that this is at the, at the very tail end or maybe the very beginning of on the reflecting pond in Washington, D.C., and the crowds have never equaled what he brought that day? And I would just ask you this question. Any donkey can knock down a barn door, but only a carpenter can build one. We can, we can hee-haw at him and, and make, make issue. But the reality is he changed the country. And he's a hero. God used him. Oh boy, did he have a past. Just like everybody in the room. God's not interested in your ability, but your availability. He stepped forward, death threats, and he finally got assassinated. Finally, not like I was hoping it, but because they promised it and they did it. And he changed the world. Next. Anybody know who that is? She was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007, but she lost to Al Gore. You say that, but you don't even know anything about her. I guess that's fitting. Irena Sendler's heroic actions were forgotten by most of the world until 2000 when four girls at Uniontown High School in Kansas decided to research her life as part of a history assignment. Sendler was a Polish Catholic and her surgeon father raised her to think of the Jewish people as equals. 
When the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939, she was working as an administrator in the Warsaw Social Welfare Department where homeless people and orphans were provided with food and shelter. Sendler immediately decided on her own initiative to begin a covert mission to supply food, medicine, and money to any Jews in need of them. She knew this would be illegal under Nazi rule, so she signed the Jews up under Christian names to keep the authorities away, and she told them that anyone who was signed up to receive aid had highly infectious typhus. And while the Jews lived under false identity, Sendler kept their real names in jars buried under an apple tree in her neighbor's yard. Once the Warsaw Ghetto was established, the Jews inside began dying at a rate of 5,000 per month from starvation and disease. And Sendler entered the ghetto daily disguised as a nurse, convincing Jewish parents to let her smuggle their children to safety. And she's credited with personally saving the lives of 2,500 children. Spearing them out of the ghetto under false names and giving them to adoptive families, orphanages, and convents. She hid some in wheelbarrows full of clothes or food and gave one infant to a man to smuggle out in his toolbox. Others were taken out, hidden in coffins and burlap potato sacks. And on October 20th, 1943, the Gestapo finally figured out what Irena was up to and arrested her. They smashed her feet and legs until all the bones were broken. That's why she's in a wheelchair. But she refused to divulge any names. They sentenced her to death, but her friends bribed one of the guards to let her go, and she spent the rest of the war in hiding, and afterwards she dug up the jars. The year before her death, Irena was nominated for the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. The Power of One, here's another one. Stefania Podgorska. Podgorska was born in a small village in southeastern Poland in 1923. When she was 14, she moved to a nearby town of Bresmasil and took a job working for a local family of Jewish grocers. And when the Nazis invaded, her mother and brother were sent to a German labor camp and Stefania's employers were confined to the ghetto, leaving her to care for her six-year-old sister. Then in 1942, the Nazis began liquidating the ghetto. And Joe Diamant, the, ste- the son of Stefania's grocer boss before the war was sent to a camp but managed to escape by leaping from a moving train. Alone and desperate, Joe found his way to Stefania, who agreed to hide him in her attic. Joe managed to get in touch with his remaining family and the number of Jews escaped the the ghetto and took shelter in the Pogorska's home. Stefania had to move to a nearby two-bedroom cottage to accommodate them all, and there were eventually 13 Jews concealed with the uh, Podgorskas. And Joe fashioned a makeshift wall in the attic to hide them. Two years later, the Germans took over a building across the street and converted it into a hospital and then started taking over apartments in the neighborhood. And a German officer knocked on their door and told the Podgorskas sisters that they had to leave within two hours. And the Jews hiding with them urged them to go and save themselves, vowing not to be taken without a fight. After praying, however, Stephania claimed to have heard a woman's voice urging her not to go. Her mind made up, Stephania decided to stay, even though she knew this risked her own life and that of her sister. And when the officer returned, he cheerfully told Stephania that he would only need one room after all and that she could carry on living in the other one. The officer stayed for seven months, completely unaware that 13 Jews were hiding just above his head. She later married Joe after the war she lived. I think that's it. I'll close with just simply saying, you're either going to be gluttoned or you're going to be working. 
And you know what? You're going to get tired. But what happens is when you step forward like that little boy who was the lone nut, then Andrew comes along and then everybody starts dancing. And 15,000 people are fed. And I've watched this little congregation. We've been dancing together for the last three years and we've watched how God's used and made our efforts. And and the first people to dance with me, I mean, I just remember feeling so stupid. And here comes Harry and Nick, Brett, Ron, Tom, countless others. And now it's a movement. The rest of you just sit on the lawn Get fat and happy. We start organizing and transforming and feeding lives. And we realize we're the distributor, he's the manufacturer. And you want to know the secret to having a full heart and a worn out body? Prayer, give thanks. Bless the Lord. Give thanks in all things for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's not your ability, but your availability. Everybody has a screwed up past, no doubt. And God can't wait to use you. So let the Lord minister to you. Let those lives challenge you. Let Harry's life challenge you. There's so much that needs to be done. And apathy is not faith. And apathy is not obedience. Apathy is gluttony. It's time to let the Lord use us. And I have to tell you, and this is it. This church gets it. And coming to the shore, my phone lighting up. My heart was full. I'm so grateful. And I love that everything is a teaching opportunity, even the trials. And we're all growing together. And I may forget your birthday and I may forget your anniversary. Guaranteed I will. But I know you love me and you know I love you. We're servants. We're not family. I mean, we're family in the body of Christ, but not like we have to contend with our own earthly families. And that's actually a higher honor. And I want to say thank you before I conclude to Brett and the staff. I don't think I've ever remembered their birthdays but they live to make my life easy. And I'm grateful to them. I'm grateful to all of you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. This picture that every gospel writer considered so profound that they would include it. And I think of that little boy whose life was so profoundly changed and so influenced and so touched. God, you're doing the same in all of our lives as we re-examine this passage thousands of years later and realize it is true today as it was then. And whatever we have, Lord, you just simply say to us this day, bring it to me. And then you pray and you give thanks and you tell us what to do and in obedience we do it. And then lives are filled and touched and people are blessed. But Lord, it starts with one person giving and saying, here, my Lord, use this. And it may have been the little boy, it may have been the mother, whatever it was, Lord, you did it. And that availability transformed an entire hillside and has transformed a church. And so God, today as we spend time in your presence in this time of worship, but more importantly in this time of prayer, 
that we wouldn't hear a message like this and walk away and go, well, I was touched, but not, not apply any of it. Lord, there's something powerful in corporate prayer. That as that little boy came forward with the five loaves and the two fish, we come forward to you with our availability and say, here, my Lord, use me. And we pray together with other brothers and sisters. And then the, the, the power, your presence, where two or more gathered, all of a sudden were filled. And Lord, I, I think of what you said, that you were moved with compassion and compassion costs you something. And so Lord, as we come forward for prayer, spirit of the living God, touch us deeply that we would be moved with compassion, that people are not the enemy, but the opportunity, that we're not going to be embittered. We're going to keep working to bless. And so Lord, I pray that this time of prayer would just be profound. Spirit of the living God, follow fresh as we come into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.